Before we get started in today's show, I want to tell you about Stamps.com, longtime sponsor of the BS Report. It's quick. It's convenient. More importantly, it's really, really easy to use. You do not have to go to the post office anymore. You can just stay home. Make your own office, your personal post office. You can avoid lines. You can avoid just standing there as somebody mails some package, some 79-year-old lady. Who needs that? Make your own mailing and shipping from your house. Stamps.com. Put in the top right of the site, BS. You'll get a deal and a scale and a whole bunch of other things. It's a great product. Uh, You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your computer and printer. Stamps.com will give you a digital scale. It will automatically calculate the exact postage for any letter, any package. They'll even help you choose the best class of mail. Wow. Why go to the post office? Just give it to the postman. Stamps.com. Check it out. The BS Report is a free-flowing conversation that occasionally touches on mature subjects. The BS Report. The BS Report with Bill Simmons. Welcome to the BS Report. I don't think I have circled a BS Report guest longer than this. Bill Burr, the comedian's comedian. Allegedly. Allegedly. Somehow you became the comedian's comedian. Like, Louis C.K., like, he vacated it when he got his own show, and the title was up Yeah, I don't think... And all of a sudden, you're, now you're the comedian's comedian. No, nah, that's not true. Well, the thing about the difference between me and Louis is Louis is actually uh, the comedian's comedian, and he uh, writes, directs, and acts, and edits, edits <laughs> films the films the, the scenes whole, that the he's whole, in somehow. The whole damn yeah. thing of one of the funniest shows on television. Yeah. All I do is stand up. So I would still say oh, that uh, you're he's, punching he's, up stuff. He's like starting both ways. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm coming out in uh, third down situations. <laughs> he's he's uh, Deion Sanders. If Deion Sanders also coached that one year exactly. when he was doing that, yeah, um, I would say that. So, so I would still I would still give it to Louis. Yeah, you know, there's a fellow out there, Dave Chappelle, that's still knocking around the microphone. That's he's pretty decent too. Right. It's stupid. They always they're just looking for somebody new. So, but uh, the comedian's comedian tag I always took as. The guy who who really cares about the roots of of comedy and who's who's in stand up for the right reasons and there's all these things and I don't even oh. know if necessarily of them true you know what I mean it's like yeah. this guy's out there and he's killing it and he's working on his act and it's like there's he's kind of the guy that, that comedians don't hate yet <laughs> right yeah, they haven't turned <laughs> I that imagine uh, yeah I can feel it the time is ticking <laughs> at some point I'm going to do so. he always does this I'm yeah. sick of that who's who's the next guy. <laughs> Screw that guy. Yeah. Yeah, we've been we I we've run into each other a bunch of times. You've actually had your podcast. I think I, I researched this. You started your podcast the exact same month I started my podcast, May two thousand seven. Uh, back you got when by a month. I was June. Oh, were you June? I think okay. I was June, yeah. But back when it was like, What the hell is this? So you turn yeah. it on and people hear it. What is this? And yeah, you know, just, eight years later it's a thing now. Yeah, it's it's amazing. that's one of the few things I've ever been at the accidentally at the forefront of just fell into it by accident this comedian bobby kelly uh, was over his apartment and he was just going like yeah man you ought to do one of these and mm. i didn't even know what it was and i i got it somewhere in my one of my hard drives of my first podcast it was literally like three minutes long i didn't even know what i was doing <laughs> and um because everything else that i did was i was always late like yeah. i graduated i stayed back in first grade so i was late with that Took me forever to get through college. I walked when I was like 25. I was late with that. When I started doing stand up, it was after the 80s boom. Yeah. And all these grizzled headliners would try and convince you to not do stand up. Not oh. all of them, but some of them would. Now, the guys who were still funny, like the legendary Boston stand ups, 
were, were totally cool. But there was those other guys who probably shouldn't have been headlining in 1988 but were just because they needed like a warm body. Those were the guys that – and those were the first guys that you opened for because you played the worst rooms and this was the guy closing. And I had a couple of those guys hit me with that whole – like, yeah, man, I got – you know, this time – like we'd be doing like a Thursday night and there'd be like 10 people in the crowd. You'd be like, look, this is ridiculous. You know, three years ago, there'd be a line around the block. They'd be adding shows. And then they would go like, you know, I tell you, you know, if I, if I was your age, if I was your age, man, I, I'd get into something else. Dude, and, and I didn't have any defenses up. And I would just yeah. take all this in as truth. And there'd just be this your life would be ruined. dark cloud. And I was just like, oh, my God, I finally found something I think I could be good at. Because I had failed at everything else up until that point in my life. And I was just, I just felt like, yeah, it was like uh, claustrophobic. Yeah. You know, then you went on stage, you got the laugh and you're like, well, whatever, this is funnier than, this is more fun than uh, unloading trucks. So yeah, we're I'll good. keep Bucket doing this. Donuts. Yeah. Yeah. You missed that generation that in that by the late eighties, because of Seinfeld, I guess like early nineties, somewhere in there, but everybody, every comedian got their own sitcom for at least like one episode. It seemed that way. Yeah. It's, and it was always your last name, like Simmons <laughs> on NBC. <laughs> yeah. And you're sitting there on a fake, you know, living room set. <laughs> Pointing at the camera with your fake wife and all of that type of thing, yeah. There was uh, there was a whole bunch of that, and um, that's why Seinfeld's one of the greats of all time because so many of those shows uh, either didn't work or the show was so much less funny, right? Than the comic, and I would always be uh, disappointed because I, you know, I was a total comedy nerd, and I would watch all these comics. I saw so many of them get shows. And even if they worked, some of them was just like, this guy is way funnier yeah. than what's going on here. And I always found that frustrating. And uh, like I was already a big fan of Seinfeld. And then I think once he got into that ensemble thing and acted out basically his bits and somehow figured out how to do that, like it went to an even whole other level. Um, well, it seems like all those comedians or most of them got focus grouped to death, which is kind of the opposite of what stand-up comedy is. You're... You come up with the stuff by yourself and you test it out by yourself yeah. and you see what works. And I have it, 12 it, people telling you what's funny. Yeah, and that becomes a whole other skill as far as like figuring out which one of those 12 knows what they're doing. Yeah. Because one of them knows what they're doing. Yeah. Because you turn the TV on and there's the stuff. Somebody has to know how to run a network, you know what I mean? And has yeah, to not know necessarily. what to pick. Well, I think sometimes <laughs> guys on our side do that blanket thing then say that nobody in the industry knows what they're doing. There's there's just same way that there's comedians, comedians, there has to be industry people's industry people. I mean, uh, so I always hold out that hope and I've, I've learned to just sort of like, you know, uh, I, I've learned not to go into that panic thing that everything that they're saying you have to implement. I mean, some of it, right. you, you know, the things that they really want. Other stuff is just suggestions. It's kind of like how I learned how to deal with hecklers. It's like everybody talking in the crowd isn't whispering. Bill Burr sucks. They might be ordering some food. They might be going like, oh, that happened to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I kind of learned to take industry notes the same way where it's just like this isn't all malicious trying to carve the heart out of this thing. Uh, I just think it's it's so different as a comic when – you're up, you know, for me, it took me 20 years just to get into those goddamn meetings or whatever, 15, 20 years that you spent, you know, a decade and a half isolated. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's funny. I'm talking about that. And then you do it and then you make the decision. Is that fun? Does that, does that work? Do I want to keep doing it? And you never have to have a meeting or anything like that. And then all of a sudden other people start chiming in. It's really uh, jarring. You must have had a few meetings with the people who were like, I'm from Boston, too. And then it turns out they're from 
like Duxbury. What's well, I mean, I'm, I'm from the suburbs too, so I mean, I would never give them a a rough time about that. I've always I've always told people I'm, I always say I'm from the safe suburbs of Boston. Ever since uh, it's easy to say Boston. I, yeah, once you move out, you go, ah, Boston. And then they always, because of Goodwill Hunting, they're like, Southie, you know, were you good at math? Do you like apples and all that stuff? You're just like, oh, no, no, it wasn't like, like those guys, uh, that was a whole other level. Like South Boston, when I was growing up, that was just a whole other level of tough guy psycho that, like, I, I still don't think it's ever truly been captured in any movie. Goodwill Hunting came almost the closest, just the scene where they just get out of the car to fight the guys at the playground for no reason. Yeah, the, the element of that. Just but the like, element of that but made, the made savagery sense. of the beatdown didn't quite, <laughs> it didn't, I mean, it's hard because you don't want the actors to get hurt, but just the stories you heard and, like, there was just, like, uh, it was, I don't know, it's almost the March Madness of Psychos was all those little, like, like Charlestown, South Boston, Dorchester, all of them. And you always knew, like, because we used to always go in town. Like, we used to drink in Chelsea. We used to drink at this bar when we were underage. We used to drive all the way in over the Mystic Tobin. We'd go yeah. in there and drinking. And it was just and it, just a complete, and there was, you know, there was some tough guys in my town. But it was just a whole other level. And you just, uh, I don't know, without even knowing it, you walked in and you just sensed it. And you kept your mouth shut. And, uh, you know, somehow navigated it with, uh, without getting the crap kicked out of you. But those, those really were some of the toughest people I ever met were in, like, those, those towns. Well, I lived in Charlestown for 10 years after college. Oh, you did? There were two Sully's. The one, the one Sully's everyone was allowed to go to, and then the other Sully's that nobody was allowed to go to unless you were, like, from Charlestown. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I was always fascinated by that. And the, the, the Sully's nobody was allowed to go to was on my street. Like, it would have been a three-block walk. But it was one of those where if you walked in there, like the the jukebox would stop. Like oh, yeah. they probably didn't have a jukebox, but and you could probably you know. tell by looking at the outside of it, you knew not to go in there. Anyways, you just knew. it's like how dogs yeah. dogs have fear about certain things. They just yeah. know that's how humans can have that. Too Absolutely. So but, having said all that, I am from the safe suburbs. Played street hockey on tennis courts during the wintertime. I had, well, a, nice, grew, had you, a nice childhood. You grew up in uh, <laughs> Massachusetts, like me, in the seventies when it was like the hockey rinks popping up in every. City basically because Bob, you are right. We're we're the same age. I'm 46. Yeah, I'm 45. Yeah, I remember. Uh, well, I mean, I'm not old enough to remember the the original Big Bad Bruins. So I get to me, there was only one. I remember one. hearing people talk about the Big Bad Bruins, but not actually seeing them. Yeah, I yeah. remember. Uh, I remember my neighbor used to always go to the Bruins games when I was younger. But my parents were not hockey people; they were from the Midwest, so they didn't have that on. But I do remember watching Jim Plunkett. That's probably one of my earliest members and my dad screaming at the TV during the 75, <laughs> yeah. the 75 World Series. Ah. I remember him flipping out, uh, cheering and, you know, Paul, I'm, you know, screaming to get the pitcher out of there. Um, so I but kinda, I thought you were a big hockey fan, though, right? Huge. Didn't you write yeah, for – you wrote something for NHL.com for a couple of years? Uh, one no, of those NHL one, sites? One playoff season, like, you just blogged about your team during as they went through their playoff run. And all I would do was go on there and just, in this really passive-aggressive way, trash the fans of whoever else we were playing. Like, I remember we were playing the, the um, who the hell was it? It was, we were playing the Carolina Hurricanes. Oh, yeah. And I just kept talking. I kept referring to them as the Whalers. Like, I refused to call them the Hurricanes. And I actually had lived in North Carolina. I don't even remember what, I, I was just trying, I was basically trolling. 
Yeah. And they never asked me to do it again. And I've kind of, I mean, I don't know that they care either way. You can way. do it for Grantland anytime you want. We're oh. here. We're available. Just yeah, say the word. I've, I've noticed that a lot of my instincts when I write that type of stuff goes against, like, they're they're trying to, they're like commercial fishing, trying yeah. to drag as many people in. And you're, and you're driving people away and antagonizing yeah. them. Not realizing it. Because we, we came up with a great ad campaign. I camp. would still run it. Oh, you would? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but you're a rebel. Look at you, man. You got suspended no, and just stuff. No, <laughs> You are. You're like you're like the punk rock uh, sports guy. I wish. Then you take a look at me and how I'm dressed, and I'm I'm totally not. I oh. like the idea of antagonizing other fans, though. Oh, it is fun because you can also, like, uh, I think recently uh, Chicago had beaten us in something significant. It wasn't the Stanley Cup Finals. It was actually just something. I think I was bringing up the Super Bowl twenty oh. on my podcast. Sad, so, bad times. So I was like, all right, I know I'm going to get a bunch of crap from Chicago Bear fans about how, how they raped us in that Super Bowl. So what I did was I just started riffing about Cubs fans versus White, White Sox fans, not really knowing anything about either one of them, just oh, sort of the vibes I picked up right. just to get them yelling at each other. And, I, and it totally worked. I didn't get any for the fact that we lost by like 40-something points. And, uh, and then the, the amount of them White Sox fans were like, dude, you totally nailed it. Because I said that the, the Cubs fans were all yuppies and they didn't give a shit. And I have, I have no idea if that's true, but... Um, that's something that I kind of, I've done that through, like, even like when I go to travel to different countries, if I want to go to a country on my podcast, I just start making fun of it. And eventually someone from their country hears about it. And then we start going back and forth and then it lightens up. And I'm like, and then they finally just go, well, you should come here sometime. And I, well, what, what venues do you have? It's your way of c- comedic foreplay. Yeah, that's what I do. Yeah. I just, I, you throw a couple rocks at the hornet's nest. You see a couple of them buzzing around and then eventually they let you in. <laughs> the rock. The Rock, who I think was the greatest wrestler of all time, he used to do that. He would go oh, into, he would go into like you know, I don't know Philly or Chicago or whatever, and he would just start when he was a bad guy, he would just start ripping their teams, and they would go insane. Yeah, no, and he, he was, and, this, and, and he was prolific too. He was great, like a great comedian. He kept writing. I, uh, he was the I best. actually got inspired watching him every week. Uh, I got into him. I was living with Bobby Kelly and. And Patrice O'Neill was still alive, rest his soul, and they were totally into him. And I hadn't watched wrestling. I mean, I kind of tapped out with uh, right around, right after Roddy Piper, Mr. Wonderful that time. Yeah, mid-80s. Yeah, late 80s, I think, was when I finally stopped. And uh, and I was like, I'm an adult now. I'm not going to get sucked into this soap opera. And, and he was around, Stone Cold Steve Austin was around. And to me, that's like, I know there was an original golden era, but that was the second golden era in wrestling. Like, I don't think they're going to get it that good again for a long time to have two guys that were that good on the mic. Because it really is the whole thing of wrestling is working the crowd. Other than the unbelievable level of punishment you have to take on your body is those guys who come out and are just hilarious. Um, There's a guy coming up out of Boston that I got a lot of faith in. Who? This dude uh, goes by the one-man thrill ride. Is he WWE? I don't know what he is. It seems like he does like his promos in his car with no shirt on, and he's yelling at like a GoPro or something. And it's it's hilarious. The one man throw ride. That's a good name. It's a great name. We've and he's got great catchphrases. You know, working out like an absolute savage. <laughs> and I find myself doing them with them. I think like I I have seen people laughing out there. They know. Uh, I'm telling you, watch out for that guy. Okay. If I had any connections, maybe this will do it with the WWE, whatever they're called now. I would tell them to watch out for that guy because he has he's got all the things. Okay, he's got he's a good looking guy. He says how awesome he is, so right. that makes him annoying and hilarious. He's funny as hell, uh, and he just 
he's, he's he comes up with like he doesn't just say funny shit. There's, there's like an arc to it like it's a, it's literally it's it's a standalone piece and um you know as a fan of wrestling i go in and out of it like when i watch when i do watch is is when a guy like that comes along and to me like 80% of it is if you're funny on the microphone when they stick it in your face yeah and and just how you get the crowd going like I think Gorgeous George was the first one who kind of figured out, hey, if I make the crowd mad, that's good for me. Yeah. And then it kind of went from there. And, and you know. I Ric think Flair to me is the best. Ric ever. Flair. Well, and then the Colts tried to steal Ric Flair's Rolex watch wearing speech that they're in they? the locker room after every game. It became a thing. And as a Pats fan, I even wrote about it last week. I was like, oh. This is I don't like this. I don't want Ric Flair to be at the Super Bowl with the Colts because this whole you know how these in sports oh, these he, little oh, things. So what, oh, sorry. What, I hit the it was this guy Sergio Brown, the safety, would do this Ric Flair speech that's famous on YouTube from thirty oh, yeah. years ago, where he's wearing this jog, you know jogging jacket, doing yeah. this. I'm a Rolex wearing and doing yeah. the whole Ric Flair thing. But Live he on was the biggest house in the biggest yeah, yeah. In the biggest part of town, yeah. which is a really good wrestling gimmick. The I don't need this. I'm so much richer than all of you. You're lucky yeah. I'm here. Like that's a oh, good that's one. the one. He, I was born with a golden spoon in my mouth, yeah, not yeah, a yeah. silver spoon, a golden yeah, spoon. Yeah, he in his had mouth. some great ones. And he just sitting there. One of my favorite, like the first time I saw this, because when when we were growing up, wrestling was regional. Yep. So the WWF was just the Northeast. So I had sort of heard of Ric Flair, but they never showed his stuff until like later on and for TBS me was, started showing it yeah at some and point. I missed yeah. out I don't know where I was in my life but I missed out on all of his stuff uh, and it wasn't until like the internet and stuff when I went back but one of my favorite things ever is when he told that guy my shoes cost more than your house yeah and he's holding up like this purple loafer with like these gold inlays but the funniest thing is the guy he's yelling at it was probably true <laughs> And he was like right in the guy's face, like an inch away, and he was screaming full volume. Yeah. Like this guy was leaving on a ship and had forgotten something. He was like that close, yelling that loud. And uh, I remember the first time I tried to tell my wife that I was on the, I was like in the fetal position, somehow sitting in a chair, had my knees pulled up to my chest because she came in going, What are you laughing at? And I was trying to explain to her because all she saw was just this sweaty guy yelling at some skinny dude. And I was trying to explain to her why it was so funny to me. Yeah. And I actually got her laughing by how hard I was laughing. So Ric Flair is one of my uh, all-time all-time favorites. Well, you had a like a basically a pro wrestling moment, the famous Philly story that was oh, one of the that. first YouTube sensations. That was like 2006. Yeah, good, I forget huh? the, all the details, but you were. It was the Open Anthony uh, traveling virus tour, and, and uh, just real quick, it, it was uh, a couple comics got the crowd was mean. One to guy, a couple one guys guy got booed. It was Philly, so that goes without saying. Um, which funny, you know, Kate, you probably told this story forty times. Well, you know, Katy Perry is going to be singing at the uh, Super Bowl, right? Yeah, yeah. Somebody actually tweeted me. Can you imagine if if they had the Super Bowl in Philly? Oh my and god! Did, I mean, grant, that's it, why they've never had the Super yeah. Bowl in Philly. Well, provided like a bunch of corporate people don't buy up all the seats, like she wouldn't even get through the first course, and they would boo her, and it would have yeah. nothing to do with her. It's like, um, but you went after them. You decide, all right, you're going to boo everybody. I'm just, I'm coming. They after all, that's you. that's Wrestling the myth, style. though. They only booed one guy. Okay, they booed the first guy, and then I went on like two and a half hours after that, and uh, Dom Herrera got booed like a little bit, and he gave him shit right back. So what I did was not unique. Uh, to the night or whatever. It's just sort of like... So, that's, so that's, why were you f so fired up then? Why was I so fired up? Yeah, why were you just like, I'm going after this crowd? Uh, because they were being... I, I don't know. They were being assholes all night. And I, and I just kept thinking, I don't, I don't need to be here. Yeah. I could have gone somewhere else, made way less money, 
in front of way less people that actually wanted to hear me. And I, I resented the fact that they were in control. That's what it was. And it pissed me off. And then they booed me. And I'd gotten booed before. And um, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a new sound. So I could stay comfortable. Right. It's like, all right. Well, you're going to boo me. At least I'm going to I'm going to say this or I'm going to say like the first time I got booed, I remember leaving thinking like yeah, it was devastating. But I just remember thinking like afterwards, once I had calmed down from the emotion of it, I started picturing people's faces in the crowd. And I just started thinking like, dude, you let that guy, that fat <laughs> in the front row in the bowling shirt, you let that guy boo you. You didn't even say something to him. Yeah. So, you know, the, I kind of beat myself up about that. And uh and, but I didn't make a conscious decision saying, you know, the next time it happens. I mean, nobody – as a comic, you don't plan to get booed. So I, I didn't think it was going to happen again. I was just disappointed in myself, I guess. So, Could, I, you, could you feel that becoming like uh, – we didn't really totally know what viral was at that point. But that was – No, I was humiliated when it was done. Like I had a headache and I was also like – You were like, I, why did I, I do that? Well, no, I knew the comics when I went backstage. The comics said it was funny. Um. So I knew that they were going to get it, but I, you know, stuff from the tour was ending up on the internet. So I was worried that all it was going to be is a comedian getting booed. So that was just going to be like, you know, Bill Burr, you know, eats a dick, epic comic fail. And would just be like, you got booed and like, uh, and had a meltdown. And I thought that I was going to be the butt of the joke. And then fortunately people saw it, you know, and saw it the way comics saw it and they liked it. Thank Mm. God. But, um. Yeah, it wasn't. I was not having a good time when it was happening. <laughs> but now, but now, now you're in that stage where you, you're now famous enough, and and you've done enough stuff. I have that notoriety. I wouldn't go well, as far as saying to fame. Well, if, and if people are going to see you, they know who you are. Yeah, and you probably have a lot of fans. And now you're in that weird zone where you're going, and it's just like unconditional love for the most part, right? Like I saw that but the Netflix, the last Netflix special was like everybody was there. They were excited that, to be there for that. Yeah. Definitely. Which definitely. is different. So, well, then what happens is, is you you have to you have to keep uh, you have to keep growing, and mm-hmm. you have to keep pushing yourself. Um, you definitely have to have all new material next time I see you, and you definitely have to keep pushing yourself, and you have to keep growing, um, or else you get run down by the young the, the kids coming up, and there's some really really funny people coming up, and, and if if you get to that point of uh, you know, to, to bring it back to sports, it's like, all right, you know, somebody comes out with a new defense or a new offense that throws everybody on their ear for a couple of years. They sit down and they break it down. Yeah. And they watch game film and they see what you're doing and then they figure it out. And then your thing just gets incorporated to their thing. And then um, all of a sudden you're not unique. You're anymore. not unique anymore. And yeah. they know what's going on. And then you, you start to like you start to slip. And I've seen that with comics where they're at the forefront and then they stop writing or they don't push their style. And comedy's just like music where it goes through, you know, uh, whatever, uh, early, you know, classic rock into disco, into new wave, into hair metal, grunge, blah, blah, blah. And then raps over here. And they're like, yeah. like there's comedy's the same thing. Alternative comedy's here. Club comics here. You know, men and women, New York versus L.A., all that stuff is hilarious in the 80s. And then, like, within eight years, it's unbelievably hacky. Going to the dentist, you can't do that bit. That's all out the window. Um, And then there's certain little, um, you know, like jokes that were funny when I started out. And I watched them go from being funny to being tired to being absolutely grown-worthy. One of them would be like, uh, 
you know, and the person said to me, ah, I'm going to kick your ass, you piece of shit. I'm going to rip your balls off. And I was like, mom, and was like the <laughs> right. big reveal was like, this is somebody you shouldn't say. Like, that was just like, that was like a, a foolproof joke construction when I started out. Like, if you just said something horrific, yeah. and I was just like, sister Mary, knock it. Like, I don't know, for whatever reason back then, it always got a laugh. And then, um, you know, and then people saw it enough times it became hacky. And then now it's just like. Like kill yourself if you're if you're still well, doing S- that. I noticed like when they show SNL, they have you know like the reruns and like Weekend Update. There was right. this whole stretch of jokes where the punchline was always like, you know, Florence Henderson working at a at a coffee shop, or it was always right. like somebody who used to be famous who now had a shitty job, and that right, was right, like right. ten years of punchlines. But now if you do it, it's like all right, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, all right, you beat that one to the ground. That's yeah. Good. You run into some guy who used to bully you, and then you go, okay, all right, buddy. Can I get yeah. fries with that? Yeah, yeah, Oh, yeah. they're working yeah, at McDonald's. Right, yeah. yeah, but that was like one of those. So to to go back to the the whole, uh, you know, going out into a theater, now they're there to see you. No, now, now the new stress is not, am I going to get this crowd? It's like, am I going to lose this crowd? Mm. Next time I come back, is there going to be less people? It, is it going to be the same amount of people? Do I do an extra show? And that panic comes um with each level there's a panic you know and with that you just like all things you gotta be like well i just gotta stop thinking about that and just keep doing what i'm doing Mm. trying you know i tried a big thing um with my act is i i try to experience new things work on myself and um and then watch enough of the news and enough pop culture stuff to kind of pepper all of that in there and uh you know i find when i try new things you know i make a complete ass of myself and uh i screw up and then a story comes out of that which might build into something else so do you read steve martin's book called uh he was born standing up yeah unbelievable he had this awesome chapter in there about when he'd just be you know in the 70s people were just much more famous in general because there was there was a lot less to do now it's a lot more splintered but like right. when he took off in the 70s it was like you know everybody knew him and he's on yeah. Saturday Live and 35 million people are watching him and he's going out and doing his act and people are saying the words as he's saying them and he's like yeah what I, I there's no I have nowhere else to go that's everyone, the only part of the knows book. my act that's the only part of the book that bugged me I was like well you write a new hour right just or or reinvent hour. yourself a little bit. But I'm saying that it is me who I feel like I'm a one-trick pony. Like, this is what I do. I run my yap and I make people laugh, hopefully. He, feel, he felt like he had conquered it. Now what's next? I'm going to start what, acting. To me is what is Steve Martin's greatness. Is he, he got so funny that he was selling out, like, where the Islanders play. What was that? Nassau Coliseum. I think that's where yeah. he told the story. And then he just says, well, did that. Yeah, I think now I'm going to, uh, you know, write – award-winning plays and scripts and like he just completely walked away from that uh, to trust in your talent like i would never trust this friggin' business to ever stop doing the road what i love about still being a comic aside from the fact that i absolutely love it is that i'm never unemployed yeah and i've seen the guys that stopped and then try to come back and it's 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 hard it's hard it's like watching that great athlete that takes a couple just a couple two three years off and Derek then, Rose then, right and, now in the Bulls, like he can't get it back. He didn't play for thirty months, and it's like just not even at that back. age, even yeah, at that he's age, twenty six. And I mean, maybe it'll come back, but right. he's you know he's not as reckless anymore. Yeah. It's tough to it's tough to take thirty months off anything. I feel like 
Yeah, and I'm getting nervous because I've been I've been working on this uh, this cartoon and uh, that yeah. we're going to have coming up on Netflix later on this year, and I have this big Australian tour coming up, so uh, I got three gigs this week that where I'm doing at least an hour, an hour and ten. Test it out and throw it against the wall is what yeah. I'm doing, and what is going to happen is I still have enough leftover material from the last hour that didn't make my new special. I'm really breaking down the whole science of how I do this. So I have... I like this stuff, though. Yeah, all right. So I have... I know that I can go there and I can give them a show and kick the hell out of them. But, like, I, I know the ones that I'm going to be getting rid of. Sort of those ones, like the way the Patriots got rid of Logan Mankins, where it's like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> this guy's a good guy. It's like, I know, but we got we to go younger in this position. Which yeah. I was one of those Pats fans, by the way, when they were saying that they were done. Like, I, I believe... I mean, I didn't think it was obviously Brady or Belichick's fault. I just felt like we kept getting rid of these guys when they still had that last contract and we kept filling them in with these younger guys and they weren't panning out. And uh, I thought it had finally bit us in the ass. I totally believe that. Did he? You, you, After the Kansas see, City I was game? suspended, so nobody will ever know what I really thought. Oh, yeah. No, I thought... It was, it was a great time to be suspended for me as a Pats fan. Oh, that's cool. It was like, I came back, I was like, yeah, I knew they were going to be good. Yeah, no, no. I thought that they had... Because it's just an unprecedented run of success. Like how many division titles they've won, yeah. how many times they've gone to the Super it's Bowl, the infrastructure. And all that. It's always like trust it, the infrastructure. Yeah, it, at some point, you know, all the great guys—Tom Landry, Don Shula—all of these guys—at some point, it it's it comes to an end. And I was thinking that that was the beginning of the end, where at the very least, we needed to go back to the drawing board, and, and we we needed an unbelievable draft or some amazing trade to get us going so to watch my fear was that we couldn't block in the kansas city game i never remembered a pat we we had bad losses but in the second half of the miami game in week one and then yeah. the kc game it was like wow we we can't block yeah and brady was just on his brady's back. just getting killed like this is not and what kills well me is on, on on the sports espn and all them they're going like he's got the lowest passing rating of his career it's like dude are you watching he's throwing he's throwing it on the, from a 45 degree angle <laughs> right Going down, but so like you guys are here to go. I actually uh, love Belichick and Pete Carroll, and I think they had a very similar season this year. Where the first month of the season, they had to kind of figure out what team they had, and everybody was kind of saying about Seattle, like these guys are, you know, they, you know, the Super Bowl hangover, they lost too many guys, yep. blah blah. And the Patriots, you know, they've had their run; it was a great run, and and they're finished. And I think uh, what. What's unbelievable about both of those coaches is they're able to, after a month, assess strengths and weaknesses and then just tighten that whole thing up. And then all of a sudden, they start getting the momentum going. And uh, like what Pete, Pete Carroll wins, like back to back in the cap era is, is amazing. Is unbelievable. Yeah. It's, it's like other than winning a championship, it's to somehow get your team motivated again after all the people you're going to lose. Because yeah. you know the deal. Once you win a Super Bowl, every coach you have is now a head coach. And they're all going to go out and like... And you lose like seven free agents. Yeah, they're going to go coach at Notre Dame like we had. You know, everybody's going to go take off or go coach at KC. Yeah. They're going to like... And it's, it's, it's almost like when it, we got a great band and they have that killer album and then everybody thinks they're a lead singer or the lead guitarist thinks he can go start a band. It's like, no, you guys. You the guys bassist wants get... a song. Yeah. yeah, he wants to sing on one of them. It's yeah. just like, no, dude, just keep doing what you're doing. That's why I loved in your book that disease of more. I'd never yeah, heard, I never heard that uh, Pat Riley Pat Riley. speech. Pat Riley's smart. Yeah, but I, I apply that to just you – can, you can apply the disease of more to, to – even as a comedian, you can apply that uh, – 
to just what you're doing. Like if you had a great special and stuff like that, and then like, you know, if you, if you forget the process that got you there, you know, when you start, you know, you're making more money. So I, you know, I don't need to go down to the clubs every night. Yeah. You know, I'll work it out when I go on the road and you start doing like that and you get soft. Like you'd be like, I used to go to a coffee shop three times a week and write jokes for yeah. two hours. Now I'll make it two. Yeah, I'll make it one. Like, now I'm not I, going I write on at stage. All. I write on yeah. stage. I do write. I've always written on stage for, for the longest time. But like, but for me, it's uh, how you get better is you, you, you can't go up in front of your crowd when you go on, once you're a draw. Because like you said, they're going out there, they're psyched to see you, and they're going to give you extra. Yeah. Um, but what it is is you go down to the comedy store Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, and you go down there, and it's just people they pulled in off the street or just tourists, and they don't know who the hell you are, and you walk on stage. Like a cruise and, ship would be yeah. another one I would think would be scary. Yeah, and you just sit there, and you go up, and you do your stuff, and they're going to let you know. Hmm. And then the later you go on, the harder it gets. And uh, then People you, are a little drunker. Yeah, you really got it. And that's, that helps. But there's a tipping point with going on later where it, it makes you stronger and then it starts to – you develop bad habits. Curse more. You're louder. You, you, oh, that's interesting. Like well, it's like 12.30 versus 11.30 on TV or something. Yeah, it starts to go like – you know, because they've been there. They've seen like 20 comics and it's like um, – you know, like I have all the respect in the world for comics that that have started out here. Uh, or that try to start out here because it's it's this is like the hardest place to start, and the fact that they go down there and they slug it really, out. Really, you think like, it's well, the hardest place to oh, start? How God come? Yes, God yes. Well, because stage time is so much harder to get here because you have all these seasoned people that then move here, yeah. um, and then they and they're having a hard time getting on unless they got a show or something, and uh, so like guys that would be headlining in other towns are now just trying to get. 10 minute like uh, guest spots mm. so it kind of pushes everybody down the road um, there's a comic Sebastian who started out here and he's the only guy that I've wa- actually witnessed watching go from you know I actually lived in the same building as he did and he mm. walked up to me he was just this guy from Chicago and he was just going like yeah I've seen you I saw because he was like a comedy nerd so that's the only reason yeah. why I saw me because I'd only done like two things and he just how do you do uh, you know Thinking about doing comedy and blah, 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 blah. He's a real smooth guy and everything. I was like, yeah, just go down to the comedy store. And I ended up moving. I left L.A. because I couldn't hack it out here. And I went back to New York to just try to get better at being a comedian. And I remember like six, seven years later, I came back down to the comedy store. And I'm waiting to go on. And I'm looking in the original room. And I see this guy on stage. And I'm like, I know this guy. And he had the Sebastian. Like, you don't forget that name. And I saw him. He was great. And he's become like you know, one of the biggest drawing acts in the country and did it ground zero, started doing it here in LA where wow. it was just like, and also when he started too, like the comedy store is great now, but when I was out here in the late nineties, like there was, I mean, part of it was maybe the headspace I was in, but there, there was a cloud hanging over that place. Like that place was, was, was really dark. Like you went in there and you know, you had to read a couple self-help chapters in a book before you went in there just to try yeah. to, at least maybe maybe it's most of it's me, the way I was wired. Like I went in there and all the fun, all the joy of doing stand-up did not exist there. And uh, and I think it was because the club was – it was transitioning out of the uh, – it was still the 80s, big 80s hangover. Yeah. And they were almost reinventing themselves as far as like uh, becoming this destination place again, which 10 years, 12, 15 years later it is. Like now the Comedy Store um, – the level of anticipation and excitement that you feel in the crowd when you go in there on a lot of nights 
Um, I, you know, it seems. I mean, it's never going to be the way it was when you hear the glory. The days. lineup. I, I follow them on Twitter. The lineup every day is sick. I know like seven people. It's sick. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I was living in Boston. And Rogan's day. back down there now. Joe Rogan's, uh, you know, is is back doing spots down there. And that guy, you know, he's one of he's been the, one of the best in the country forever. So right. I mean, that's another just guy just coming up with a giant piece of lumber, knocking it out of the park every night. So I love going down there. When I was living in Boston in the nineties. The comedy scene, I used to like to go sometimes, and sometimes people would come through, you know, like the the big acts at the time, like Seinfeld, people like that. But um, it was always like Steve Sweeney and Lenny Clark. And yeah. it, it was just they were like the icons. And then these other people would come in, and they were kind of trying to be Steve, Steve yeah. Sweeney or Lenny Clark. Kevin Meany, they had the Sweeney Kevin, Meany yeah, shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, we, I mean, do you think it was easy to do comedy in Boston at that point? It sounds like you you didn't mind it. As a, starting in Boston was easier than starting in L.A., absolutely. But yeah. as far as Boston being easy, um, well, I never started anywhere else, so I, I can't <laughs> really compare. But I, I would say Boston was a great place to start yeah. because the bar had been set so high and that Boston style of like rapid fire, don't even let them uh, rest. And like there was always big crowds. So I felt like from day one I learned how to, how to hold like a 300-seater. Mm. before I really even knew what I was doing, just out of pure survival. It's like I just you know, I just kept going in there, getting punched in the face, and then you come back the next Monday. You said Monday nights at uh, Nick's Comedy Stop. Yeah. And um, there was a comic down there on Tuesday nights had his own show, Kevin Knox, rest his soul. And uh, he was this monster headliner, and he used to host this show. And uh, I remember I used to go down with Patrice and Dane Cook, and uh, we used to, the running joke was that Kevin Knox didn't, host a show he like took breaks from killing like sometimes a headliner if they if they if they're headlining they're a headliner if they host they they were like sort of did this mc thing where they would they'd bring the laughter up to a certain point and yeah. some of the guys were so good they would they would gauge who they were bringing on next and they would bring the laughter right about to where they thought that person could do yeah so it had this 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 you know this build to the show he didn't he went up there and just napalmed the crowd in in between every comic and comics would just be sitting there quaking in their boots because he had all these classic bits and we'd be asking like oh you did noxie show like well you know what bit did you have to go on have you ever gone to the drinking and driving bit he's like no no the ski story he'd be like oh god that's <laughs> i hate the ski story it kills me every time i go up and like you just go on there and it was like uh, it was like learning how to surf like catching like these giant waves and you would just, you know, <laughs> get, you know, tossed around and hit the rocks and stuff. But eventually you learned how to do it. And then when I went to New York, I had all these big crowd skills. And then I went down there and they were also experiencing that lull, like, you know, when the 80s was the over. Post 80s, yeah. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was that moment where like slam poetry, like, is this going to be the next thing? It was like this really weird time as far as like live in the village entertainment. That would be a good 30 for 30. Yeah. The five minutes when we thought slam poetry was going to yeah. be the next thing. I mean, it, it got all the way to the point where they had the deaf poet. <laughs> yeah. It just never translated. I never understood it. I was like, am I, did I get old? I'm, I'm 25. and I, Am I 50 now? What happened? No, Why am I, I missing this? Yeah, I was not. It didn't did, get it. Yeah, it didn't. God bless him, but it, it didn't connect with me. So all of a sudden, then I had to go on in front of like eight to ten people. Yeah. And I didn't know how to do that. I just knew how to be like. Big and it was like you're making eye contact with specific people as you're telling jokes. Yeah, I'm gonna look at this guy now. Yeah, and I I just had to learn how to now how do how do you just stand there yeah. and just talk and be funny? And I sat in the back of the club down the comedy cellar and the comic strip, and I just I just watched and I would watch guys. 
how they did it. And then I would watch those same guys go up on a weekend in front of a packed house. And I watched how they did it that way. And I, you saw like the, uh, the differences and it was just, it was, you know, a whole other level of, of learning. Well, it seems like your generation now has become a generation. I don't know, 10 years ago, I don't know if we necessarily say that. It was right. kind of forming. But now you're like, yeah. oh, wow, look at all these guys. Yeah. This is pretty good. Because I remember, you know, growing up, I felt like Seinfeld was a generation. Yeah. And then Letterman would have the first couple of years on his show, he had people from the previous generation, which was like right. the George Miller type people. And I, yeah. I always felt like that was a generation. And now it's your. So I don't know what the next generation is. Yeah, well, they're already well on their way. In, early thirties, uh, mid thirties people. I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, because it usually takes yeah, it takes you about ten years to uh, to get people to to really start to see. I mean, I got a pretty good eye. I can watch somebody and see if they're going to be good or potential to be great. But then it always comes down to the person if they're going to do the work, and if they're mm. going to push themselves, if they're going to let you know this business eat you up, which can happen. You know, you sit there looking at other people, going, "Oh, this person is blogging," and they're. They're they're moving ahead of me. Maybe I should be like blogging. Like they, you don't get like it's like no, dude. Just do what you you're supposed to do. Just keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep doing. That's it. why it's so fascinating though, because you it's such a competitive field, but yet you guys have such a camaraderie too. It's yeah. like a cross between well, I, I, all I, these different things. You but know? I went through that period. Like I think a lot of comics go through that period where it just initially the first few people who break out and get stuff. It's the first time you feel like wow, I started the same time they did. And they're here now, and yeah. I'm here, and that's the first time your ego has to deal with that. And you know, for me, I didn't have the uh, the, the mental coping skills to be like, oh, you know, you know, they had to pick someone, they picked that person. You're gonna you're gonna get what you're gonna get. Right. So good for him. I didn't have that. Like I, I took like another person's success is like, what am I doing wrong? I, you know, I, I need to. I should try to do more what they're doing. Blah 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 blah. Like, and I think that that's a normal thing. Um, that was like 90% of the Dan Cook backlash, it felt like. What was that? That just like it seemed like he ascended so high that people were like. Well, I think if you're selling out Madison Square Garden a right. couple nights in a row and like every hot chick in the country wants to bang you, it's impossible that there's not going to be like resentment. I mean, yeah. 90% of, of, of the Internet is resentment. It's resentment based. Like proving, you, you, proving listen, why somebody shouldn't be good and well, like when stuff. you post a picture of anything, you yeah. can post a picture of you with two supermodels, and they would somehow be like, "Yeah, but Bill, what's up with that fridge in the background?" Like they'd somehow find stuff in the corners of the picture that she. So put your shirt. Yeah, your uh, zipper's down. Yeah, something. They yeah. would find something, and I just I feel like, uh, you know, that whole you know I love how there's a backlash yet he's continuing to sell sell out like. He had the same road schedule as the Celtics. I mean, it was ridiculous. So, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't mind that. Better win-loss percentage. If there's ever, you know, I'm experiencing a backlash, I would love to be doing it, playing the Staples Center. (laughs) So, um, how about CK sold four straight MSG nights, and he could have done that for a while. Holy mackerel! He did did a theater. Eighty thousand people in four tries. It's unreal. No, he he did a uh, he did a run of. Theater dates. Him and Chappelle. That's why I laugh when they go, hey, you know, you're kind of uh, making some noise. It's like, no, you're sick of talking about these other guys. Right, right. Yeah. Chris Rock and Louie. And it's like, what are these guys? What, did they die or something? It's ridiculous. <laughs> so, like, Louie Louis did a run of dates like a year, a year and a half ago in New York where he did like – he was playing like a 2,000-seat uh, theater. 
and he was there like two shows a night for two weeks or something. And you were literally just doing the math going, this guy could have sold out Madison Square Garden right. like two and a half times. Yeah. And now it's a year after that. Or like Chappelle did, he did a week of shows. I don't know how many he did. He did it at Radio uh, City Music Hall. Is that what I, I yeah. just get confused? It's so long. Yes. Uh, that's like a 6,000 seater. And he did like, you know, I, he did like 10 shows there. 60,000 seats. Were that, you that's a giant stadium. Were you fascinated by his comeback? Because he had a long laugh. It was almost like, uh, I don't know. It was, well, he, it was never, like some he never left. He never well, but he, all of a he, he, he left. He, he left the show. No, but he was always still doing shows. Like he just wasn't, he announced them last second. And he would just play like a club or whatever. But yeah. you would hear about that living out here. It's like Chappelle showed up at the wherever last night. He yeah. was on for four hours. I was like, what? Just yeah, he, but he didn't I, tell I, anyone? I think he, uh, the level of famous that that, that guy got so famous he couldn't even do his act. And yeah. I just think he, and even to this day, like he had that show out in Connecticut where there's people still, like the way that he connected with people um, on the Chappelle show, like the the way that he connected with them is a very hard thing to, uh, if, if you're a stand-up comic. Yeah. Like when I would watch him going through that type of stuff or reading about it, and I would always sit there and, you try to put yourself in his shoes and be like, okay, what would I do in that situation? And I never had an answer. I didn't know how to do it. So I think what he did to pull back and uh, just kind of pull back on the reins, let everybody kind of keep moving forward and get into other stuff and blah, 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 and then come back on his own terms um, was brilliant. Mm. I think it was brilliant. And uh, I also think a lot of the moves that he made were misinterpreted in a negative way, of course, like most stuff is. Like, you know, they were going to give you $50 million and you didn't take it. What are you, an idiot? Like, people don't understand, like... It wasn't really $50 million. Yeah, he's also already a millionaire. And, yeah. And, and to, to be mature enough to be like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm happy with what I have. Yeah. People are like, don't you, you want 20 Mercedes instead of 19 or whatever the hell, you know? You had a few cups of coffee on that show. Yeah, I uh, did. What's the, what's the most, what's the one you're the most known for? Um, The dice game? Yeah, probably when I commentate. Uh, World Series of Dice, so the racial draft was big. But all of those were, you know, that's my acting career is is so much like what, what little acting career I have is, is uh, I haven't been on a lot of stuff, but I've somehow paratrooped into some, really of, some of the best stuff ever. And I'm just sort of, yeah, like Forrest Gump. I'm kind of standing in the background behind Rosie Greer and Robert Kennedy. And uh, I, yeah, like getting on, you know, do, I did a cup of coffee on Breaking Bad. Cup it was of more than a cup of coffee. It was uh, like five, six episodes. I know, but if you really look at it, yeah, like the amount of screen time I had, it wasn't. I and I also lucked out. Not only did I get on that show, I ended up being on like having like five or six lines on some huge episodes, right? Like the train robbery. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was a top, top four, top five. Yeah, the crawl space one. Yeah, I actually watched. I watched them film that. I watched them film when uh, Brian. Brian is laying in the hole and he's looking for his money. And Mr. White is. You and just kind of hung around and watched it? Yeah, this is the rule I had because I was I was a Star Trek Trekkie level fan of that show before yeah. I even got on it. Oh, seriously? So, oh, no. I, I watched it from the pilot episode. I saw the billboard. I saw him standing in his tidy whities you know, with the one shirt tail tucked in, the other out. Breaking Bad, I wasn't familiar with that um But that you were not until like the fourth or fifth season, right? Fourth. So I... I just 
finished The Wire. I was late to The Wire. Yeah, so I, I bought too. that on DVD and I I watched that and I was like, oh my, this is a, you know, yeah. And it was just when it was when it was over, like that feeling of melancholy of like, ah, it's over. There's no more. Like now, what do I do? I just had it again on Christmas break when they ran all of them. Yeah, and I have them on DVD, and I still felt the same melancholy. Uh, like, oh, my friends are gone again. Yeah, <laughs> to me, Breaking Bad yeah. and The Wire, those the, like they're like. Yeah. E- equal level. Bird of, of magic. Of, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Great comparison. So I needed a new show for like a year. I mm. just, or whatever. And I was just looking for that came and I was just like, yeah, I'm going to watch that. You know? And I just sat down. I watched the pot, you know, like anybody else. I watched the pilot and I was hooked. And by three episodes in, I'm like, this is just getting better and better. So I immediately started calling my agent at the time, Philip Grenz, when I was over at William Morris, I started bugging him and, to get me on it. And what he did was somewhere within a year, he got me to just read some sides so they could see that I could act. And that's how early on it was. Cause actually a lot of people didn't know it was not doing well in the ratings. And, right. And I heard a rumor like after the third season, I think that they were debating whether it was going to come back or not. And then fortunately it got on Netflix and everybody binge watched. And I mean, that was the story I heard. I don't know about that. No, so. I think it was the biggest early Netflix success story of oh, people being able to catch up. Oh, okay, quickly. cool. Yeah. That, that, yeah, that's what I heard. So, I just went in and I, I put myself on tape and read some sides. I think I read uh, the Badger sides. So I was playing. Uh, oh. Yeah. Which I, you know, I forget. I can't even remember the scene. But I think maybe one of his friends, one of Jesse's friends I was playing. So they're like, yeah, you know, you know, we'll stick a pen in him. That expression. We'll see what happens. And then, you know, two, three years later, I was at a new agency. And then I auditioned for that role of uh, what became Kubi. It didn't have a name at the time. And uh, I did the scene where... You know, I pretend I know what I'm talking about outside the car wash. And we did that scene. And uh, and I was happy just doing that. And then when they started yeah. bringing me back, I, I couldn't believe it. And it was the most surreal thing I've ever done to be like, just imagine how invested you were in the wire. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it's like you get sucked in your TV and you're standing next you're to gonna Bunk. You're going to play Marlo's lawyer. Yeah, you stand next yeah. to Bunk and you're doing a scene. Where like like in the uh, either that bar they always hung out in. Yeah. Or like you're just or just like... I have so many, like, uh, stories of, like, shooting my scene and then being like, hey, is it okay if I if I go look at the meth lab? This, you know, the one that was under the dry clean? And they, and they, they always laugh. Yeah, go ahead. Go check it out. Hey, and, uh, you're taking selfies. Yeah. I, I, I stopped short <laughs> of doing that. But I remember being so excited that, that the Ted Beneke scene – I'm going to dance around this in case people listening no, haven't watched it yet. People but, caught up. It's over. All right, so it was that episode, and whatever happens to Beneke happens to him. So the next scene when you see uh, my character and Lavelle Crawford's um, Huel, we were sitting in Saul Goodman's office, and I just remember how awesome it was to be in Saul Goodman's office, and he had the uh, the Constitution behind him. I was like, oh, my God, and then the, the Pillars of Justice, and I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And uh, Mr. White comes in, and the scene is basically he bursts in. I forget why. And then me and Huel leave. Yeah. But I was so thrilled as a fan of the show that at some point I was on screen with Mr. White and Saul Goodman at the same time. Like to me, that was like I was like with Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. If you like a Star Wars fan or something. Yeah. So uh, and that never that feeling never went away because I was such a fan. So when I would go on the show, the rule was I didn't ask any questions because I was where the public was as far as knowing what was happening. Right. And then it was this weird thing where I would get fast forward into the show and I would be interacting with these characters 
and and they would say something, and they'd be like, "Oh, that's why Jesse's on the lamb or something." And then I'd be thinking in my head, going, "Wow, God, why, why is he on the lamb? Yeah, what, what happens to Jesse? You know." Not like they said on the lamp. I just gave dialogue from the 1920s. On the lamp, see? Um, so there was stuff like that. Uh, oh, that's right. No, my character was looking for Jesse. So I knew some – obviously, we were coming to the final season right. of this. And I was – this weird thing where I, I had to know a little bit of something so I could play the scene correctly. But there was the fan part of me of like, no, 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 no. I don't want to know. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. So, What, uh, what do people recognize you more, Chappelle or Breaking Bad? Uh, definitely Breaking Bad because they, oh. they, I wasn't known at all as a comedian or anything. And like I said, I was only on like, uh, four or five, uh, episodes of Chappelle. I mean, one of them, I, I, it's a Sam Jackson sketch and I'm just sitting there getting yelled at as he's dressed like <laughs> Sam Jackson. One of the easiest. Sam Jackson beer? Or yeah. Something? Yeah. Was... yeah. Mm-hmm, bitch. <laughs> and he'd be yelling in my ear and all <laughs> yes, I Yes, did... they deserve to die. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd do it again. So all I did was I just stuck. Some cotton in my ear because he was yelling on that side, and and then all I had <laughs> to do you put cotton in your ear. That's funny. Well, he's spitting on you too. I, isn't I, he? I, well, I played drums and I f-ed up my ears a long time ago, and so I always try to like if there's going to be something loud, yeah, I try to make sure I at least do my ears a little bit of a, a justice there. So we were doing take after take, and you know he's screaming, he's doing Sam Jackson. So I, I just stuck a little, you know, some cotton in my ear or whatever, and I just tried not to laugh as he did it. So I had a lot. Um, a lot of things like that. But uh, like I said, once again, that was one that I was – as little as I was in Breaking Bad, I was in Chappelle's show even less. Um, and people weren't looking for me. So now whenever they do the reruns, like I'll get tweets like, oh, man, I didn't know hey, you were in yeah. yeah. And it's just like – and I'm thinking they're going like, I know you've seen that sketch like 30, You're just stoned. 30 yeah, times. No, you just weren't looking for me. Yeah. So uh, I definitely – like I get recognized from Chappelle's show uh, 10 years out after I was in it. But, like, I, I had done a couple of stand-up specials by the time I got on Breaking Bad, I believe. So, um, Wait, we got to talk quickly about uh, about the Pats and how America hates the Pats. Okay. And at some point, can we talk about how the hell Green Bay lost that game? Sure. And how much I hate the prevent defense? And how well, I- how about how they scapegoated the one guy in the onside kick when, like, there were 30 other reasons they lost the game? Yeah, and it all— How about the did- guy going in the slide? How about not being ready for a field goal, fake field goal, when you're uh, up 16 nothing? How about this? How about you kicking their ass for 55 minutes yeah. playing the Seattle Seahawks, and then for the last five minutes you, you decide to play the clock? Right. I mean, You played you know not what I'm to getting? lose on I one end. I sat there with Paul Verzi, another comic, two comedians texting back and forth calling what their plays were going to be. That shouldn't happen right. at the pro level. Lace it to the right. Yeah, right up the, you, you, you get the ball back, five minutes left, two first downs, the game is over. You have Aaron Rodgers as your quarterback, and all of a sudden now you're afraid that he's going to throw a They were a afraid pick. the whole game, though. They went, they kicked field goals inside the one and the two. I go John quarter. Madden on that. I go John Madden on that where you take the points. It's early in the game. Oh, no, you're old school John Madden? Take the points. And so look, you're and not it, an advanced metrics but, guy. But it worked. But it worked. What screwed them over? All not being ready for the, the, the onside, uh, not the onside, the, uh, the, the fake, fake field, field goal, goal, all of that. Them. What killed them is when they stopped playing the Seahawks and they started playing the clock and they started mm. playing not to lose. And they ran the ball, right? Boom. Timeout. Two seconds off the clock. Ran it again. Boom. The Seattle calls another timeout. T- taking five seconds off the clock. You got Aaron Rodgers. You run it again. Even Troy Aikman goes, you know, I think they keep it on the ground here. Everybody knew what they were going to do. Yeah. Boom. Seattle doesn't call a timeout then. But then the, the clock's ticking. They, they basically burned maybe a minute off. They did. 
Gave the ball well, they back. They got the interception, and they then they did it three more times. I think they, they threw they, once. They, they give the ball back, and then you go into the prevent, which is the prevent is you cover the sidelines, you give up the middle, you don't give up a touchdown on one play, but you just give it to them in six plays. Yeah. And the prevent makes every quarterback look like Elway in Montana. Everybody all of a sudden becomes this gunslinger that just can't miss in the last two minutes. They go right down the field, they give it up to them. And like, I mean, a two point conversion. I mean, I can't. I mean, that that has nothing to do with the 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 prevent. But but that guy but, got but, that but, guy escaped blame though. But not but, being able to tip a hail mary two point conversion when you're standing next to foot. it. Come but on. I'm just saying, like, you went, you picked the ball off. You're up by twelve, with five minutes to go, and within ninety seconds, Seattle is driving. Yeah. For the for for the game winner, and I just was. I I literally had to go for a drive. Because I was so happy as a Patriots fan because I wanted to play Green Bay. Like, I, I thought we, for whatever reason, I just felt we matched up better with them. Like, I'm nervous that we don't get a good pass rush. Uh, we don't put pressure. So you were unhappy as a Patriot fan then? That Seattle yeah, won. Yeah. yeah, I would have rather have played Green Bay. No, Seattle's defense, they're, 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 that's one of the best defenses in I watched in, with my in, dad, and we, we changed our mind 17 times on who we wanted to win. Between oh, Green as far Bay. as that? Because initially it was like, yeah, we'd rather play Green Bay. We played them already. We can beat them. And then watching how bad Seattle was like, oh, we'd rather play Seattle. And then Sherman got hurt. It's like, yeah, we want to play Seattle. And then Seattle uh, came back. It's like, oh, probably yeah, rather play guys, Green Bay. I, 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 I just changed my mind over I don't want to beat Seattle if Sherman's hurt. I want that guy to be 100%. I was always one of those guys like, you know, if the Red Sox are playing the Yankees, you want Derek Jeter playing. It's like, I want to beat their best guys. And everything's on the up and up and all of that type of stuff. And Did you uh, see Sherman's quote? What did he about say? his injury? No. He said, I'm a man, man. Yeah, he's going to he play. Did, he did double man. Yeah. I'm a man, comma, man. Yeah. Uh, but That's pe- like when you do a sentence and you say that, that, and it, it's yeah, actually yeah. right. Um, but And I knew that that's that America that's doesn't like the Patriots and hasn't for some time. And then this football deflating balls thing, which is like, oh, yeah, that was the reason we won that's by why you 38 lost, points. Yeah. That's all you yeah. do take a little air The Colts scored seven points. Yeah. No, they, well, this is the thing. I, I kind of got this thing with the Colts where I respect them as an organization, but they have this history of losing playoff games, and then all of a sudden there has to be a rules change. Yeah, like th- when, that when, one was broken by an Indianapolis TV station. It's like, yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's always the Colts. Like when we, when we, when they couldn't beat the Patriots back in the day. Change the passing rules. They changed the passing rules. That's why all Dan Marinos and all those records get broken. Like, like, yeah. like they made a tape. We're not allowed they, to they hit Marvin Harrison anymore. They, they bitched after the game. Yeah. They bitched at the Pro Bowl, and then they made a tape, and then the league went like, look, what? They did is legal. That's how you can cover a receiver. And Jim Irsay sat on the rules committee. This is what kills me when they talk about the Patriots cheating. That guy sat on the rules committee and spearheads a new rule change that's advantageous to his own team. I mean, that's that's like you got, you got the nut running the nut house. So somehow they, you know nobody gives him crap about that. Then there was a playoff game. They lost to the Jets. And there was some sort of thing where they had the game won. They kicked the ball off. And the Jets had a great return. And then the very next year, you got this new rule. Where every kicker can now kick it out of the out of the end zone. Right, right. So now we beat the Colts again. Deflated football. And now uh, deflated football. Like the ref doesn't touch the ball after every play. Like, ooh, these are squishy and soft, and these ones aren't. Well, I, I, don't, I don't get it. But that. But then you read up on it, and everyone's saying how deflated football. Well, they help you throw the ball. Well, the Colts scored seven points. They so they weren't helped by the ball. The whole thing's. Yeah, but don't, I, don't both teams I think Belichick give... loves it though. I think he loves when when. He used, takes motivation for different yeah, I things. I hope they do. So this I will be like, do. people think we're, everyone's yeah. against us. Like, that's what he does. He does. He and did I, it last I, week I, with the Colts. The Colts were cocky, and he played that the whole week. 
These yeah. guys think they can come in here and win. Did you see how they acted after the Denver game? These guys think they're the favorites. Right. That's what he does. Speaking of which, Seattle better be the favorites. I know they won't be because every moron in Vegas is going to see Brady in Belichick's face, and they're going to put – so Vegas will have to get money on both sides of the ball. So that line – you said Well, you know there's even, never been a pick'em Super Bowl. It, oh, always, right? it always tilts at some point with towards somebody. I think it's going to tilt toward the Pats. I think the Pats are going to be favored by two and a half. Only be because guess. of the average gambler who doesn't know what he's doing. Well, that's but that's their Vegas's job is to set the line to provoke the most amounts of money on both sides. Right. So like last year, Denver was favored over Seattle. Like I think by like four and a half, but it was Manning money. It wasn't actually because they were. Better. I don't think anybody though saw that game coming that they were going to. Dominate the way they did. Well, how like, physical they did. Oh, Seattle's awesome, man. They, they, this is an awesome defense. And it's uh, like even with the guys that they lost, I mean, they really. Uh, uh, it's a physical defense. Yeah, I like I, it. My thing, I, I don't think they need to stand over everybody after every time you tackle them. Like they've never been tackled before. Like I kind of have issues with like, I don't like when cornerbacks <laughs> like, like hit a receiver and then they stand over them. Like, it's just like, dude, the guy's running full speed. He's jumping up in the air, looking the other way, trying to catch a flying object. Gee, did you knock him down? I mean, right. there's just something. And the fact that the cornerback never has to deal with that is – I don't think he should be doing all that uh, talking afterwards. But I will say this. I think that with the new passing rules over the last 10 years that, you know, the, the, the old cliche, the hardest thing to do in professional sports – is to hit a curveball. I now think it's it's becoming to cover a receiver. Although the last year and a half, they've really cut down on the pass interferences. But there, there was a couple of years there where it was just like, you couldn't do anything after right. five yards. You just had to escort him down the field. Like, Gronk, Gronk seems to get manhandled every game now. And it's Gronk is being refereed now like Shaquille O'Neal in the early 2000s. <laughs> it's like, well, it's not fair. It's not fair that he's on the field. So guys should yeah. be allowed to just molest him. I but think, you show all these replays. He's always getting pulled or grabbed. Right. I think it's going to be a great game. I'm hoping it's going to be a classic. And obviously I'm hoping that the Patriots win. But, uh, you know, I, I just, you know, Seattle is, is really, really good. Do you have any mean comments for the people of Seattle to kind of get the, the Super Bowl flame going? No, because I'm a team player. I'm okay. not going to give them any bulletin board. Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you should say I've mean done, comments about I've the done Patriots. Nothing. I've done nothing but give them compliments. <laughs> so we should turn on the Patriots so Belichick could use it in a checkboard. <laughs> Look at this. Two Boston fans don't believe no, in us. This is, but to, to be totally honest, uh, the only thing I ever gave Seattle a rough time about, other than Pete Carroll's khakis, is uh, that's the thing about them, you know, being the loudest fans and all of that. Uh, uh, bringing the no- the noise meter guy in? Yeah, that that whole thing just yeah. seemed a little hokey to me. But they are great fans, and they have been hanging. Like, uh, I always liked Seattle. I always liked the Kingdome. I was like the Mariners back in the day. Like, I, I've, I love the Sonics. And the, the Sonics. I like uh, the Sonics, and I love the city, too. Yeah, I'm, really I'm bummed out that we're playing Seattle. It's probably my favorite non-Boston City, and I, f- I feel bad that they took the Sonics away from them. I'll work yeah. up a healthy amount. Did you ever go to a game there, Key Arena? I never did. I did. I never I went did. There it was and great, I, right? I went, and it was uh, Kevin Durant's one and only oh, his season farewell there. year, yeah. And you only played one year there, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I remember we went there, and it was still, people weren't understanding. It was still like, who made the right pick? Should he take an Odin? Should he take an Durant? Yeah. That was still going on. And, of course, like they were right what there. What position is he? Yeah, Portland yeah. and Seattle. And I remember three times during the game, Durant had the ball, Way outside the three-point line, and they blew the whistle, and he just, for whatever reason, turned around and did a turnaround jumper from, like, eight feet behind the arc, and it would go through nothing but net, and you mm. literally heard the crowd going like, oh! Like, they were <laughs> yeah. like, oh, my God, we got somebody. Like, it was probably their first 
since like Sean Kemp, and even then, I don't yeah. think like they even understood the level that this guy was going to become. Um, so that was that's one of my cool. Uh, I don't think I've told you that when I go on the road, I go to professional sporting events, and I've been to a home game of just about every professional uh, team in all four sports. Except for like 10 or 11 of them. Well, you have a couple weird sports secret thingies. Like you have a whole college football thing you do, right? Yeah. What was that? What's that one? Every year I go to a big college uh, rivalry game or like I went to LSU, Alabama this year. It's like a a yearly personal tradition. Yeah. Well, if I I just went on the road, it just becomes like cheesecake factories and strip malls and you want to kill yourself. So I try to go out and have some sort of fun event. Like when I went to Jacksonville, we went to a gun range and silencers illegal. And me and Verzi got to shoot guns like that. It was just, it was insane. And uh, and we went to Jacksonville Bengals game, I think. And like, you got to, you have to go to a home game in Jacksonville before either they move or they build them a respectable stadium. Because, dude, it's like stepping back in time. You feel like you're at one of the first Super Bowls or something, like at Tulane. Well, they had University. the Super Bowl there. That's that was. <laughs> I kind of made fun of the city all week because. Oh, what, what year was that? It was the last Pat Super Bowl. It was Pat's Eagles. And well, the last one we won, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was in Jacksonville, and, and they it? just weren't ready for it. I felt, I actually felt bad. I went from being angry about it to actually be like, "Oh, these people, they like." They, yeah, you can't have the whole world dis- descend on a city like that. I actually it would have been like having the Super Bowl in Worcester. Yeah, like I, that's like the level of size it, oh. size it was. <laughs> like, imagine the, the Worcester Centrum having yeah. the Super Bowl. You know, I actually, I am a huge, but I am a huge fan of so-called tertiary or B and C level cities. Like I have a tour coming up where I'm going through the South, and, oh. and I'm deliver a bus tour. I did it a year, uh, about a year, almost two years ago, and I had the best time. And we, uh, rather than going to the mainstays, you know, yeah. the, the Nashvilles, Atlanta, and that type of thing, we're going to all like we're going to go to like Knoxville or like Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're going to go to these other ones and play these cool old theaters that, like, you know, that's cool. Like BB King and Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis played like way back in the day, and they haven't really changed them. It's going to be so much fun, and um, we're going to start uh, at the Kentucky Derby and end in nice. New Orleans. So I always build it around sports or Big getting ones. hammered, smoking cigars, <laughs> one or the other. Although this year I'm really trying to cut down my cigar smoking. Like I'm trying to just do one a week, but I've already smoked five for this month. So I was actually thinking that I, I can't smoke one until like February 5th or some, something like that. Well, that's why I always wish they – when they have these all-star weekends and stuff, like this year the NBA all-star weekends in New York, like great. Okay, you could go to New York for a million reasons, but it would right. be fun if it was like in Memphis. And Memphis oh, is yeah. a cool city, you know. Yeah, but no, for NBA All Star Weekend purposes, they would never have it yeah. in Memphis. You know, well, they like, don't get that. Like people in Memphis want to have fun too, and yeah. they like good food. And and if you just go there and do what they do, like Jacksonville, I went to Jacksonville. I ate alligator and I shot guns with silencers and I had a phenomenal time. The now, problem with the Super Bowl is it's it's like three hundred thousand people or whatever, two hundred thousand or whatever ends up descending and yeah. if they pass. It's almost like a nightclub. It can pass a a, a limit. Yeah, where it's just I, uh, too many. And you I've don't been have to the two Super Bowls. Things. Yeah, I went to uh, the Green Bay Patriots one where we lost. That oh was, no, that was brutal. And then I went to the the Patriots Rams one. And I then I called that one. That was a great one. I called that one. I was I was thinking about how Belichick was Parcells' defensive coordinator, and he had shut down Elway and the Fun Bunch, I believe they were called, and the yeah. Run and Gun Bills. So, and all these Ram fans were going like, we're saying it's just a scrimmage. 
why did you even show up? You know, because they were the greatest show. On I was turf. there that whole week. They were so cocky. Yeah, and I and I remember being hammered, of course, walking down Bourbon Street, and I was pointing at every Pats fan, going, "They don't know. They think they know, but they don't know." And I just was yelling, "Bill Belichick is a defensive genius." But even then, I, but even then, because that was before the Red Sox won the World Series, Bruins had won a cup, Celtics were dead. It was a draft. I, I, I was I was talking trap. I was talking sh- like I I had a feeling that they were going to do it, but I would never. I actually. I guess I did say that. I did call it. I, I had a, a feeling that we were going to uh, – it was going to be close and that there was going to be a pick six by the Patriots. For some reason, I thought that that was going to happen. But never – once they tied it up, I was just going like, oh, God, we're going to lose All the again. Boston DNA came back when they tied yeah, it up. it's like we're going to lose again. Well, when I'm, I, I came of age, I mean, one of the – I saw the, the Raiders, the roughing the passer. Sugar game, Ray Hamilton. And then I saw uh, – that's why whenever Raider fans bitch about the tuck rule, it's like, dude, it evened out. That that roughing the passer was bullshit. And roughing you, the passer was so much worse. That's on YouTube, thank God. The, he's that's what hitting I the guy as he's throwing it, yeah. and his arm follows through and touches his helmet. Cause yeah, he's, he's like off his feet. But it was the 70s. They didn't call yeah. anything. Like, and, but the thing about then, too, is, is the way that rule worked. It, was, it wasn't a yardage thing. It went to where Stabler threw it. Right. So they gave him the ball right on the one-yard line, and then it was over. And then the yeah. Raiders went on to win Super Bowl eleven. So we had a tuck, the tuck rule. Yeah. The tuck rule. Evened out. Yeah, it evened out, but that was a horrible call in '77, uh, and uh, in the tuck rule is a horrible rule. That is a fumble. It's a horrible rule that was interpreted correctly. And my apologies. That's right. Then you went to all the Raider fans That's who were right. offended by it. That's right. But I was it's saying the right this, rule. It's, it's I mean not, the right call for the wrong rule. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Terrible rule. Well, terrible I got to ask rule. you, what do you think about the Des Bryant thing? A terrible rule. Terrible. How many times did he catch that ball? Three. It, it was a catch. He caught. What, and it looked up? like he was reaching out for the goal totally. line. And, yeah, it was he catch. got penalized because he had giant hands, and he was athletic and had presence of mind to try to get that much closer. Yeah, I, I don't. I, we'll I, never know what that feels like. No, uh, we won't. <laughs> so, your last special is on Netflix. Yep, it's called "I'm Sorry You Feel That Way." Your animated series is called "F Is for Family." Comes out in December on Netflix. I'm a big Netflix guy. Those guys. And you have an FX pilot you're working on that will hopefully get pulled. Oh, I'm sorry, ne- Netflix and an F- FX for pilot. FX pilot. My dyslexia. My FX Netflix is a little yeah, complicated. Yeah. There's X's everywhere. Yeah, FXX. Anything else you want to plug? Um, Monday morning podcast. Monday morning podcast. I have available on iTunes. Then I'm about ready to go do a whole tour of Australia, two shows in New Zealand, Singapore, Hong Kong, and then Mumbai. And then Jesus. I, then I go to New York City for the Patrice O'Neill benefit. Oh, what's that? Yeah. Um, well, you know, he obviously, uh, Patrice passed away before everybody was ready. And, yeah. uh, you know, he still had people in his life that need to be taken care of. So once a year, myself and a bunch of our friends, we all get together, we do a show, and we take all the money, and it goes to his loved ones. And it's really, really affected their lives. Like his stepdaughter, I know, is going to private school. And, um, okay. Uh, his mom was able to uh, get herself a nice place to live, you know, move next to her daughter and, and stuff like that. It's really been a, a great thing. And uh, um, Patrice, like you want to talk about comics, comics, you know, all that stuff yeah. we talked really. Patrice was the guy. And all the guys that I mentioned that I say are well beyond me, all yeah. of those guys, they I would probably tell you the same. I mean, he was a whole uh, – like you, if you ever did stand-up 30 for 30s, yeah. Like Patrice would have been the first one, and it would be, and it would, would have been the untimely death of someone who was going to be. I mean, he was already great, but like people don't even understand when they watch Elephant in the Room that they don't even understand that that was that was him figuring out, just him figuring out how to do the next level of this business. Like, yeah. like that guy, what he had left in the tank uh, was you know pretty much limitless. You know, 
and I'm really not exaggerating either. So anyway, so we do that every year, and um, it's just been this great positive positive thing. It's one of my favorite things that I do all year. Plus, it's like a stand-up comedy, like high school reunion. I get to see a bunch of guys that I don't necessarily, you know. Bill Burr, thank you for coming on the BS Report. All finally, right, brother, after finally all happened. these years. It I finally know, happened. All right, hope next you. time I see us, Patriots have won another one. <laughs> thank you for downloading the BS Report with Bill Simmons. Too much fun. Check out more podcasts at the iTunes Music Store or at Podcenter at ESPNRadio.com. Peace out.